This week's episode of the podcast was recorded on the 8th of June 2022 at home in Wicklow. And it is fundamentally a poetry recital. (laughs) I decided in my compromised state, uh, you can hear by my voice, I'm not in... uh, not in fine fettle. Um, I decided I didn't have the the space in my brain to do one of my normal episodes where I basically freestyle around a couple of themes. And I realized I'd misattributed a poetic reference in last week's episode to Allen Ginsberg, and it should have been attributed to Walt Whitman. And so I went on a bit of a, a bit of a a journey around the poetry websites um, online and corrected or rectified my um, my knowledge gaps, and it just got me enthusiastic about revisiting some poets that I've known over the years um, as a reader, not personally, of course. And I decided to share some of their poems on today's po- podcast. So you're going to hear. A poem from Walt Whitman. You're going to hear Allen Ginsberg's most famous um, poem of all. Um, and also some poems from Sylvia Plath and uh, another great confessional poet, Anne Sexton. So that's what's coming up. So sit back, relax and get into a receptive state of mind because a whole lot of poetry is coming at you. And I'll see you there real soon. Cheers. Ooh, not gonna change my mind. Leaving the dream behind. Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. Welcome to it. So this is going to be a very challenging episode. <laughs> it might be challenging for you, the listener, in terms of, you know, in terms of... Uh, getting through it but as you can hear by my voice I'm still uh, somewhat smothered by a cold and this has been afflicting me for a couple of weeks now it's not the dreaded covid I did my tests they were negative so I'm okay on that front but I am being brutalized by something on the throat on the chest in the sinuses I may just be about to come good. I felt absolutely rotten this morning and I thought there's no way in hell I'm going to get the podcast out on time this week. But here I am, my last desperate attempt and foolishly, fool, in a fool, <laughs> fool, in a foolhardy way, I have decided to take on, to take on a, a challenge and this is going to be a poetry heavy episode now this is this isn't random this is inspired by me last week in last week's episode uh, when I was discussing Ray Liotta's career and talking about his style of acting and the type of actor he was compared to Kevin Costner with whom he appeared in 1989's Field of Dreams I I was sort of saying that um, I referred to the barbaric yop the barbaric yop um, which is a quote from an American poet 
and I misattributed the quote. The quote? The quote of the poet. I misattributed the quote to Allen Ginsberg. Um, And in fact, it comes from a Walt Whitman poem from his uh, his epic Leaves of Grass. And so I went digging around today to go, now hold on, what's, how did I get that confused? And, be, be, you know, it, I had reminded myself as soon as I kind of heard my mistake, I was like, ah, I know what I was thinking of. Um, it might have been Walt Whitman's Yop, but it was most certainly Allen Ginsberg's Howl. And there's a crossover there. And I suppose in many ways, those beat poets and confessional poets of the mid 20th century in America were the the um, the inheritors of Whitman's own uh, expressive voice and his own honesty and his own um, exploration and presentation of a highly personalized American voice, even though Whitman was active a hundred years earlier. Um, I mean, Whitman, in fact, uh, he was around during the American Civil War. He was around for the 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 death of Abraham Lincoln, and wrote the famous poetic eulogy for Lincoln, that lovely title, When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed, uh, which is his sort of tribute to the, the fallen Lincoln after his assassination. Um, so while Whitman was certainly uh, capable of the internal exploration of self and successfully, con- you know, successfully conducted what you know his findings into his poetry you know he wasn't a million miles away from a classical poetic voice um and the eulogy to lincoln sort of uh, backs that up but if it wasn't for whitman maybe we wouldn't have had the likes of allen ginsburg we wouldn't have had the likes of robert lowell um and others uh, you know maybe kerouac falls into that uh, bracket as well um and and the female I, I was curious about you know who who were considered the female kind of confessional poets of the mid 20th century and the two names that came back most prominently were Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton um you know with, you know, with whose work I was more I would be more acquainted with uh, poetry of Sylvia Plath's from when I studied literature in college um, and I came upon Anne Sexton's work in a different context. I think when I was teaching English in, in Melbourne, I came across an astonishingly uh, powerful poem of hers called Red Roses, which uh, I, might, I, might, I might indulge myself and read that. There's a couple of other of her poems I'd like to read also. Um, but anyway, look, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is I've come to this episode this week being determined to indulge my interest in American poetry um, and in these distinctive voices. And so I, I'm planning to recite some of the more famous works by these poets that you've heard me mention. 
Um, and some of these poems are long. And I'm, you know, even as I sit here, I'm wondering, am I going to have the stamina um, and the vocal dexterity to take on Ginsberg's Hell, which really became the defining document of the counterculture uh, movement in America. Um, the, the, the defining artistic expression of that countercultural voice coming as it did approximately, what, 15 years after the Second World War, uh, maybe less, maybe 10. Um, and it was a controversial poem. Um, there were attempts to have it banned for being obscene because of its explicit references to, to sex and to homosexual sex. Um, but it was, thankfully, that, was, uh, that case was thrown out by uh, by a, a sensible judge who's who fundamentally was saying, you know, poetry and the artistic voice can't be restricted to mundane, boring things. I mean, I'm paraphrasing atrociously there, but it was it was a strong stand to go. Voices, all voices and all expressive voices and all artistic voices need to have that scope of freedom of expression, and yeah. So I'll see, I'll see. I might try and take on hell, which is enormously long. But I am going to start with something shorter and simpler. And that is Song of Myself, 52, by Walt Whitman from his Leaves of Grass. And I believe this is the poem with which he concludes his Leaves of Grass collection, which he worked on. Uh, through most of his life and updated it um, and this is the poem where you'll hear the reference to the barbaric yawp the spotted hawk swoops by and accuses me he complains of my gab and my loitering I too am not a bit tamed I too am untranslatable I sound my barbaric yop over the roofs of the world the last scud of day holds back for me it flings my likeness after the rest and true as any on the shadowed wilds it coaxes me to the vapour and the dusk I depart as air I shake my white locks at the runaway sun. I effuse my flesh in eddies and drift it in lacy jags. I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean. But I shall be good health to you nevertheless, and filter and fibre your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere waiting for you. There you go. Thanks, Walt.
So uh, that was his sort of his parting poem, reflecting on his return to the soil out of which grass would grow from his remains and those searching for him would find him underfoot. Um, very, very sanguine and accepting of his fate. Very realistic. He, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I haven't, you know, I haven't read or studied much of Whitman, but having a look at that poem today, nice imagery, nice language, and sometimes that's all I want from a poem. I don't necessarily need to to understand it immediately. Um, I'm happy just to go on the journey and and see, you know, and get get my head around the language or get my get my tongue around the language, and that's something we forget that poetry as much as it can be nice to read really it's it's something that should be heard it's something that should be said aloud um for it to to be more effective to be given volume to be given air to be sounded in the air um yeah so what i'm going to do is i'm just going to kind of jump around a little um and I'm going to come straight over to poor old Sylvia Plath. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't laugh. I mean, hers was a tragic life, um, tormented by depression and suicidal tendencies. Uh, and she eventually did succeed in taking her own life. And her her poetry was very much of the confessional movement, where poets really explored their inner demons and laid them all out on the page for everyone to see um sometimes in very in very painful ways in ways that would perhaps make the listener uncomfortable uh and flinch they're you know they're confronting and this is one of platt's most famous poems um it's 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 daddy and sylvia platt's father died when she was only a little girl i thought it was when she was eight now in this poem she refers to him dying when she was 10 so i'm not sure if i got that wrong um yeah sylvia plath famously married to ted hughes who i always think of as the great british naturalist poet a poet of the natural world um that might be that might be a little bit too reductive um and he was a champion of platt's work after her death she died very young she was only 30 when she ended her own life um but you read some of her poems and you kind of get an insight into her into her troubled mind and there's a lot of darkness there um but what we get from her poetry is an undeniable power and i think that's part of my fascination in in this you know in what i'm trying to convey in this episode with the poems i'm presenting is the power of the unencumbered voice uh, or the expression the unencumbered expression of an encumbered soul um 
this poetic cry from the heart and the poetic fearlessness uh, whether in in form and breaking the conventions of poetic form there's a lot of free verse non-rhyming open uh, verses um, and a sort of a, a language of a language of emotional and social and political and personal brutality that is that is brave and unafraid to be seen and is a very pure expression of something deep inside the poet and it comes out in different ways but Sylvia Plath the way she used language it was very unambiguous and fierce and I think in Daddy uh, which is sort of her attempt to to sever this hold her father has over her um, her memory of her father and how he has loomed large in her consciousness um, this is her attempt to go enough is enough I don't want you to have this power over me anymore and there's so much anger and hurt and viciousness I think in how she negotiates this ex- this attempt at severance uh, via the poem so um, here it is this is Daddy by Sylvia Plath you do not do you do not do anymore black shoe in which I have lived like a foot for 30 years poor and white barely daring to breathe or achoo. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time. Marble heavy, a bag full of God. Ghastly statue with one grey toe, big as a Frisco seal, and a head in the freakish Atlantic, where it pours Bean green over blue in the waters off beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you, Ach, do. In the German tongue, in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polak friend says there are a dozen or two. So I could never tell where you put your foot, your root. I could never talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. It stuck in a barbed wire snare. Ick, 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 ick. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you and the language obscene an engine an engine chuffing me off like a jew a jew to dachau auschwitz 
Belson. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. The snows of the Tyrol, the clear beer of Vienna, are not very pure or true. With my gypsy ancestress and my weird luck and my tarot pack and my tarot pack, I may be a bit of a Jew. I have always been scared of you. With your Luftwaffe, your gobbledygoo and your neat moustache and your Aryan eye, bright blue. Panzerman, Panzerman, oh you not God, but a swastika so black no sky could squeak through. Every woman adores a fascist. The boot in the face. The brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy, in the picture I have of you. A cleft in your chin instead of your foot. But no less a devil for that. No, not any less the black man who bit my pretty red heart in two. I was ten when they buried you. At twenty I tried to die and get back, back, back to you. I thought even the bones would do. But they pulled me out of the sack. And they stuck me together with glue. And then I knew what to do. I made a model of you. A man in black with a Mein Kampf look. And a love of the rack and the screw. And I said, I do. I do. So, Daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the root. The voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. The vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year. Seven years, if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, Daddy, you bastard. I'm through. I mean, what do you say? What do you say to that? It's, um, yeah, it is brutal. Um, I mean, God love her, I suppose, is what I, I, is what I think. And yet she left us that amongst other poems. Um, but that poem always packs a punch. Um, no matter how many times I've come back to it, there's just something so ferociously hurt and broken hearted and futile about it 
so there's a real um in my opinion just a, a tremendous sadness that uh you can't shake off when you hear that poem anyway sylvia let's move on um <laughs> excuse me sorry the the next poet i want to look at is another female poet because i, I mean I, I was trying to I, I wanted to sort of go like what's the difference what's the difference in the voice the female confessional voice versus the male confessional voice um and the i found myself wondering about the sort of social expectations the social mores that would have prevailed at the time these poets were writing in the mid 20th century 1950s 1960s and what they would have been up against conservatism and traditionalism and sexism um in ginsburg's case um perhaps uh, anti-semitism homophobia um and what different levels of freedom would have been afforded a man as opposed to a woman what the different concerns would have been of men and women you know male and female artists writers at that time how they felt impacted by society um and it does seem to me that Plath and Sexton, their their poetry and their confessional poetry, it's much of it is is is, is very much about the the you know, the internal experience, the internal their internal landscape and their internal female landscape, um, and their obsessions with. Uh, womanhood femininity motherhood um sexuality um apart from you know gender neutral ideas of you know depression and suicidal ideation um and sexton i believe also ended her own life um but maybe she she i think she was a, a model as well as a poet and she like she did other things she may have even been a singer for a while so her some of her poetry has um a more overtly sexual energy actually um and i'm gonna read you i'm gonna read you a few of hers because i think i think they're worth they're worth hearing and you can you can see what you, you can see what you make of them yourself um i referred Maybe I'll start with that one. The first poem of Anne Sexton's I came across when I was researching the confessional school um, from the the mid-20th century. And Robert Lowell is considered, I think, the father of the confessional school. And I was doing this with some um, high school students in Melbourne. And I found red roses. And I just it, it just kind of... I found it really chilling and I wanted to yeah I'm going to revisit that one and you can see what you think 
So this is Red Roses by Anne Sexton. Tommy is three, and when he's bad, his mother dances with him. She puts on the record Red Roses for a Blue Lady and throws him across the room. Mind you, she never laid a hand on him. He gets red roses in different places. The head. That time he was as sleepy as a river. The back. That time he was a broken scarecrow. The arm like a diamond had bitten it. The leg twisted like a licorice stick. All the dance they did together. Blue Lady and Tommy. You fell, she said. Just remember, you fell. I fell, is all he told the doctors in the big hospital. A nice lady came and asked him questions, but because he didn't want to be sent away, he said, I fell. He never said anything else, although he could talk fine. He never told about the music or how she'd sing and shout, holding him up and throwing him. He pretends he is her ball. He tries to fold up and bounce, but he squashes like fruit. For he loves Blue Lady and the spots of red roses he gives her. Yeah, so... uh, I don't know what makes that such a haunting poem. The the victimisation of little Tommy. The manipulation of Tommy. Convincing him to lie. The deceptive metaphor. We see that title, Red Roses, and many of us conditioned to such things assume (laughs) it's going to be something nice a love poem perhaps and instead we get a picture of my yeah of of a mother who's out of control of a mother who throws her son around the place and of the son's dedication to saving his mother and keeping her safe from persecution um yeah strong stuff strong stuff let me let me give you another one of hers that um isn't quite so quite so grim um yeah this one i like this is called barefoot Loving me with my shoes off means loving my long brown legs, sweet dears as good as spoons, and my feet, those two children let out to play naked, intricate nubs, my toes, no longer bound. And what's more, see toenails and all ten stages 
root by root, all spirited and wild. This little piggy went to market, and this little piggy stayed. Long brown legs and long brown toes. Further up, my darling, the woman is calling her secrets, little houses, little tongues that tell you. There is no one else but us in this house on the land spit. The sea wears a bell in its navel. And I am your barefoot wench for a whole week. Do you care for salami? No. You'd rather not have a scotch? No. You don't really drink. You do drink me. The gulls kill fish, crying out like three-year-olds. The serfs, a narcotic, calling out, I am, I am, I am, all night long. Barefoot, I drum up and down your back. In the morning, I run from door to door of the cabin playing chase me. Now you grab me by the ankles. Now you work your way up the legs and come to pierce me at my hunger mark. So yeah, a poem of a very uh, a very different vibe and feeling and more adult focused and sex focused. Um, but again, evocative, atmospheric, um, really, yeah, has a nice little punch all of its own. Um, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give you one more of hers because I think uh, this one is also very nice. Um, just uh, just my opinion, of course. <laughs> this one is called. 45 Mercy Street a fragment and apparently this inspired or in some way inspired Peter Gabriel's song Mercy Street so you can go and do a bit of your own digging for that if you want to find out more there so yeah here we go 45 Mercy Street a fragment by Anne Sexton In my dream, drilling into the marrow of my entire bone, my real dream, I'm walking up and down Beacon Hill, searching for a street sign, namely Mercy Street. Not there. I try the back bay. Not there. Not there. And yet I know the number. 45 Mercy Street. I know the stained glass window of the foyer, the three flights of the house with its parquet floors. I know the furniture and mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, the servants. I know the cupboard of spode, the boat of ice, solid silver, where the butter sits in neat squares like strange giant's teeth on the big mahogany table. 
I know it well. Not there. Where did you go? 45 Mercy Street. With great-grandmother kneeling in her whalebone corset and praying gently but fiercely to the wash basin at 5am. At noon dozing in her wiggy rocker. Grandfather taking a nap in the pantry. Grandmother pushing the bell for the downstairs maid. And Nana rocking mother with an oversized flower on her forehead to cover the curl of when she was good and when she was. And where she was begat and in a generation the third she will beget me with the stranger's seed blooming into the flower called horrid. I walk in a yellow dress and a white pocketbook stuffed with cigarettes. Enough pills, my wallet, my keys, and being 28, or is it 45? I walk, I walk. I hold matches at street signs, for it is dark, as dark as the leathery dead, and I have lost my green ford, my house in the suburbs, two little kids sucked up like pollen by the bee in me, and a husband who has wiped off his eyes in order not to see my inside out. And I am walking and looking, and this is no dream, just my oily life, where the people are alibis, and the street is unfindable for an entire lifetime. Pull the shades down, I don't care. Bolt the door, mercy. Erase the number. Rip down the street sign. What can it matter? What can it matter to this cheapskate who wants to own the past that went out on a dead ship and left me only with paper? Not there. I open my pocketbook as women do. And fish swim back and forth between the dollars and the lipstick. I pick them out one by one and throw them at the street signs and shoot my pocketbook into the Charles River. Next, I pull the dream off and slam into the cement wall of the clumsy calendar I live in, my life, and it's hauled up notebooks. Okay, and Sexton, pretty interesting, no? Uh, again, I like the imagery, I like the rhythm, I like the momentum, I like the, there's notes of defiance, there's notes of anger, there's notes of, of yearning, there's notes of looking back, there's notes of shame. I mean, this is why it's called the confessional school. They're deeply, deeply personal expressions of self. Um, and yeah all the more powerful for it okay so now it's <laughs> now it's time for the the foolhardy perhaps we shall see attempt at reading Allen Ginsberg's Howl I I know my 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 good friend and a friend of the podcast Shane in san francisco 
he and I studied together way back when, fellow English literature students, and he got turned on by uh, to and by Ginsberg uh, early on. Um, he he Ginsberg, not he, my friend Shane. Thanks for listening, Shane. I know you're out there. Um, yeah, he he occupied a particular place um, as this this figure of of rebellion and this figure of experimentation and this figure of fearlessness and defiance and probably nothing more than hell typifies this and it's divided into three parts this long long poem which uh i saw one commenter dismiss as claptrap (laughs) (coughs) excuse me but others who hold it up uh and sanctify it as a hallowed artifact of great american poetry uh defining american poetry the the first part of the poem is Ginsberg's sort of uh, roll call of figures who he identifies with and celebrates. Uh, we're talking about rebels and revolutionaries and poets uh, from all around America and communists and people of the street and people of the night and people on the outside and people who have been oppressed and repressed um and toilet traders um and sex workers uh and it's it's just a, a you know this kind of modernist almost stream of consciousness flow of um you know of 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 a a parade of colorful colorful outcast figures with whom Ginsburg clearly identifies with and wants to 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 celebrate and and protect and make seen in in his verse. Uh, that's the first part. The second part is his his howl, his howl of derision, his howl of despair at the the at the rise of of capitalism and the industrial capitalist machine and he names it as Moloch who was a a child devouring figure of of Jewish myth unless I'm mistaken Uh, so that verse is full of exclaimed outcries of disgust and Moloch's name is taken many, many, many times. And finally, he addresses in his third section his friend or acquaintance or fellow struggler, fellow rebel, fellow artist, fellow writer, Carl Solomon. Uh, and it, it's, you know, the poem Hell is dedicated to Carl Solomon. So wherever you see it, it's for Carl Solomon. Carl Solomon is a writer who Ginsburg met at a psychiatric institution or in the waiting room of a psychiatric institution. And he uses the name Rockland in the final verse to name that institution, but it's a made-up name. And apparently Carl Solomon 
was quite resistant to uh, the appropriation of his story for the sake of Ginsburg's uh, opus. But there you go. It's uh, it's still <laughs> it's still gone down as great art. So I'm going to begin this attempt, and I'll see. I may have to stop at times to uh, to try and uh, clear my head uh, physically. Um, so I can maintain a reasonable voice, even though I know I sound a bit foghorny. I, <laughs> I'm very horny tonight. I'm foghorny. Um, okay, this is, I hope, I hope it's going to be, this is Howl by Allen Ginsberg. This is from, oh, I'm going to kill myself for not noting the, um, noting when it was written. Uh, 1955 so it's probably written a couple of years before that but first recited I think um, October 1955 um, and there was a great I saw a great quote from um, from people who attended um, from one of the people who attended uh, Michael McClure and in this, I'm, I'm quoting this. I, I lifted this off Wikipedia. Okay, again, not not extensive research here, but McClure said in response to Ginsburg's reading, McClure wrote, "Ginsburg read on to the end of the poem, which left us standing in wonder, or cheering and wondering, but knowing at the deepest level that a barrier had been broken, that a human voice and." body had been hurled against the harsh wall of america fantastic i love that so that's just to give you an idea of the significance of the poem and its impact when ginsburg first made it public so here we go bear with it go on the journey see where it takes you part one I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold-water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant, cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake-like tragedy among the scholars of war, who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of the skull, who cowered in unshaven rooms in underwear, burning their money in wastebaskets and listening to the terror through the wall who got busted in their pubic beards returning through Laredo with a belt of marijuana for New York, who ate fire in paint hotels or drank turpentine in Paradise Alley, death or purgatory to their torsos night after night, 
with dreams, with drugs, with waking nightmares, alcohol and cock and endless balls. Incomparable blind streets of shuddering cloud and lightning in the mind, leaping toward poles of Canada and Patterson, illuminating all the motionless world of time between. Peyote solidities of halls, backyard green tree cemetery dawns, wine drunkenness over the rooftops, storefront burrows of tea-head joyride neon blinking traffic light, sun and moon and tree vibrations in the roaring winter dusks of Brooklyn, ashcan rantings and kind king light of mind. Who changed themselves to subways, for the endless ride from Battery to Holy Bronx on Benzedrine until the noise of wheels and children brought them down, shuddering, mouth-racked and battered, bleak of brain, all drained of brilliance in the drear light of zoo. Who sank all night in submarine light of Bickford's floated out and sat through the stale beer afternoon in desolate fugazis, listening to the crack of doom on the hydrogen jukebox. Who talked continuously seventy hours from park to pad to bar to Bellevue to museum to the Brooklyn Bridge. A lost battalion of platonic conversationalists jumping down the stoops off fire escapes off window sills off empire state out of the moon yakety yakking screaming vomiting whispering facts and memories and anecdotes and eyeball kicks and shocks of hospital and jails and wars whose intellects disgorged in total recall for seven days and nights with brilliant eyes meet for the synagogue cast on the pavement, who vanished into nowhere, Zen, New Jersey, leaving a trail of ambiguous picture postcards of Atlantic City Hall, suffering eastern sweats and Tangerian bone grindings and migraines of China under junk withdrawal in Newark's bleak furnished room who wandered around and around at midnight in the railroad yard, wondering where to go and went, leaving no broken hearts, who lit cigarettes in boxcars, 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 racketing through snow toward lonesome farms in Grandfather Night, who studied Plotinus, Poe, St. John of the Cross, Telepathy and Bop Kabbalah because the cosmos instinctively vibrated at their feet in Kansas, who loaned it through the streets of Idaho, seeking visionary Indian angels, who were visionary Indian angels, who thought they were only mad when Baltimore gleamed in supernatural ecstasy, who jumped in limousines with the Chinaman of Oklahoma on the impulse of winter, midnight, streetlight, small-town rain, who lounged hungry and lonesome through Houston, seeking jazz or sex or soup, and followed the brilliant Spaniard to converse about America and eternity, a hopeless task, and so took ship to Africa. Who disappeared into the volcanoes of Mexico, leaving behind nothing but the shadow of dungarees and the lava and ash of poetry scattered in fireplace Chicago. 
who reappeared on the west coast investigating the FBI in beards and shorts with big pacifist eyes, sexy in their dark skin, passing out incomprehensible leaflets who burned cigarette holes in their arms, protesting the narcotic tobacco haze of capitalism who distributed super-communist pamphlets in Union Square, weeping and undressing while the sirens of Los Alamos wailed them down and wailed down Wall, and the Staten Island Ferry also wailed, who broke down crying in white gymnasiums naked and trembling before the machinery of other skeletons, who bit detectives in the neck, and shrieked with delight in police cars for committing no crime but their own wild cooking pederasty and intoxication, who howled on their knees in the subway and were dragged off the roof, waving genitals and manuscripts, who let themselves be fucked in the ass by saintly motorcyclists and screamed with joy, who blew and were blown by those human seraphim, the sailors, caresses of Atlantic and Caribbean love, who bawled in the morning, in the evenings, in rose gardens and the grass of public parks and cemeteries, scattering their semen freely to whomever come who may, who hiccuped endlessly trying to giggle but wound up with a sob behind a partition in a Turkish bath when the blonde and naked angel came to pierce them with a sword, who lost their love boys to the three old shrews of fate, the one-eyed shrew of the heterosexual dollar, the one-eyed shrew that winks out of the womb, and the one-eyed shrew that does nothing but sit on her ass and snip the intellectual golden threads of the craftsman's loom, who copulated ecstatic and insatiate with a bottle of beer, a sweetheart, a package of cigarettes, a candle, and fell off the bed and continued along the floor and down the hall and ended fainting on the wall with a vision of ultimate cunt and come eluding the last jism of consciousness who sweetened the snatches of a million girls trembling in the sunset and were red-eyed in the morning but prepared to sweeten the snatch of the sunrise flashing buttocks under barns and naked in the lake who went out whoring through Colorado in myriad stolen night cars, N.C., secret hero of these poems, Coxman and Adonis of Denver, joy to the memory of his innumerable lays of girls in empty lots and diner backyards, movie houses, rickety rows on mountain tops in caves or with gaunt waitresses in familiar roadside lonely petticoat upliftings and especially secret gas stations, solipsisms of John's and hometown alleys too who faded out in vast, sordid movies, were shifted in dreams, woke on a sudden Manhattan, and picked themselves up out of basements, hung over with heartless tokay and horrors of Third Avenue iron dreams, and stumbled to unemployment offices, who walked all night with their shoes full of blood on the snowbank docks, waiting for a door in the East River, to open to a room full of steam, heat and opium, who created great suicidal dramas on the apartment cliff banks of the Hudson under the wartime blue floodlight of the moon and their heads shall be crowned with laurel in oblivion, who ate 
the lamb's stew of the imagination, or digested the crab at the muddy bottom of the rivers of Bowery, who wept at the romance of the streets with their pushcarts full of onions and bad music, who sat in boxes breathing in the darkness under the bridge and rose up to build harpsichords in their lofts, who coughed on the sixth floor of Harlem, crowned with flame under the tubercular sky surrounded by orange crates of theology, who scribbled all night, rocking and rolling over lofty incantations which in the yellow morning were stanzas of gibberish, who cooked rotten animals, lung, heart, feet, tail, borscht and tortillas dreaming of the pure vegetable kingdom, who plunged themselves under meat trucks looking for an egg, who threw their watches off the roof to cast their ballot for eternity outside of time and alarm clocks fell on their heads every day for the next decade, who cut their wrists three times successively unsuccessfully gave up and were forced to open antique stores where they thought they were growing old and cried who were burned alive in their innocent flannel suits on madison avenue amid blasts of leaden verse and the tanked up clatter of the iron regiments of fashion and the nitroglycerine shrieks of the fairies of advertising and the mustard gas of sinister intelligent editors or were run down by the drunken taxicabs of absolute reality who jumped off the brooklyn bridge this actually happened and walked away unknown and forgotten into the ghostly days of chinatown soup alleyways and fire trucks not even one free beer who sang out of their windows in despair, fell out of the subway window, jumped in the filthy passaic, leaped on negroes, cried all over the street, danced on broken wine glasses, barefoot, smashed phonograph records of nostalgic European 1930s German jazz, finished the whiskey and threw up groaning into the bloody toilet, moans in their ears and the blast of colossal steam whistles who barreled down the highways of the past, journeying to each other's hot rod Golgotha jail solitude watch or Birmingham jazz incantation, incarnation, who drove cross-country 72 hours to find out if I had a vision, or you had a vision, or he had a vision to find out eternity, who journeyed to Denver, who died in Denver, who came back to Denver and waited in vain, who watched over Denver and brooded and loaned in Denver and finally went away to find out the time and now Denver is lonesome for her heroes. Who fell on their knees in hopeless cathedrals, praying for each other's salvation and light and breasts until the soul illuminated its hair for a second who crashed through their minds in jail, waiting for impossible criminals with golden heads and the charm of reality in their hearts, who sang sweet blues to Alcatraz, who retired to Mexico to cultivate a habit, or Rocky Mount to tender Buddha, or Tangiers to boys, or Southern Pacific to the black locomotive, or Harvard to Narcissus, to Woodlawn to the daisy chain, or Grave who demanded sanity trials accusing the radio of hypnotism and were left with their insanity and their hands and a hung jury, 
who threw potato salad at CCNY lecturers on dataism and subsequently presented themselves on the granite steps of the madhouse with shaven heads and harlequin speech of suicide demanding instantaneous lobotomy and who were given instead the concrete void of insulin, metrazole, electricity, hydrotherapy, psychotherapy, occupational therapy, ping-pong and amnesia, who in humorless protest overturned only one symbolic ping-pong table, resting briefly in catatonia, returning years later truly bald except for a wig of blood and tears and fingers to the visible madman doom of the wards of the mad towns of the east, Pilgrim states, rocklands, and greystones, fitted halls, bickering with the echoes of the soul, rocking and rolling in the midnight solitude bench, dolmen realms of love, dream of life and nightmare, bodies turned to stone as heavy as the moon, with mother finally, and the last fantastic book flung out of the tenement window, and the last door closed at 4 a.m., and the last telephone slammed at the wall in reply, and the last furnished room emptied down to the last piece of mental furniture. A yellow paper rose twisted on a wire hanger in the closet, and even that imaginary, nothing but a hopeful little bit of hallucination. Ah, Carl, while you are not safe, I am not safe, and now you're really in the total animal soup of time and who, therefore, ran through the icy streets, obsessed with a sudden flash of the alchemy, of the use of the ellipsis catalogue, a variable measure and the vibrating plane, who dreamt and made incarnate gaps in time and space through images juxtaposed, and trapped the archangel of the soul between two visual images, and joined the elemental verbs, and set the noun and dash of consciousness together, jumping with sensation of pater omnipotence aeterna deus, to recreate the syntax and measure of poor human prose, and stand before you speechless and intelligent and shaking with shame, rejected yet confessing out the soul to conform to the rhythm of thought in his naked and endless head. The madman bum and angel beat in time, unknown yet putting down here what might be left to say in time come after death. And Rose reincarnate in the ghostly clothes of jazz, in the gold-horned shadow of the band, and blew the suffering of America's naked mind for love into an Eli, Eli, Lama, Lama, Sabachthani saxophone cry that shivered the cities down to the last radio with the absolute heart of the poem of life, butchered out of their own bodies, Good to eat a thousand years. Part 2 What sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination? Moloch. Solitude, filth, ugliness, ash cans and unobtainable dollars. Children screaming under the stairways. Boys sobbing in armies, old men weeping in the parks. Moloch, Moloch, nightmare of Moloch, Moloch the loveless, mental Moloch, 
Moloch, the heavy judger of men. Moloch, the incomprehensible prison. Moloch, the crossbones, soulless jailhouse and congress of sorrows. Moloch, whose buildings are judgment. Moloch, the vast stone of war. Moloch, the stunned governments. Moloch, whose mind is pure machinery. Moloch, whose blood is running money. Moloch, whose fingers are ten armies. Moloch, whose breast is a cannibal dynamo. Moloch, whose ear is a smoking tomb. Moloch, whose eyes are a thousand blind windows. Moloch, whose skyscrapers stand in the long streets like endless Jehovah's. Moloch, whose factories dream and croak in the fog. Moloch, whose smokestacks and antennae crown the cities. Moloch, whose love is endless oil and stone. Moloch, whose soul is electricity and banks. Moloch, whose poverty is the spectre of genius. Moloch, whose fate is a cloud of sexless hydrogen. Moloch, whose name is the mind. Moloch, in whom I sit lonely. Moloch, in whom I dream angels. Crazy in Moloch. Cocksucker in Moloch. Lack love and manless in Moloch. Moloch, who entered my soul early. Moloch, in whom I am a consciousness without a body. Moloch, who frightened me out of my natural ecstasy. Moloch, whom I abandon. Wake up in Moloch, light streaming out of the sky. Moloch, Moloch, robot apartments, invisible suburbs, skeleton treasuries, blind capitals, demonic industries, spectral nations, invisible madhouses, granite cocks, monstrous bombs. They broke their backs, lifting Moloch to heaven. Pavements, trees, radios, tons. Lifting the city to heaven, which exists and is everywhere about us. Visions, omens, hallucinations, miracles, ecstasies, gone down the American river. Dreams, adorations, illuminations, religions, the whole boatload of sensitive bullshit. Breakthroughs, over the river, flips and crucifixions, gone down the flood, highs, epiphanies, despairs, ten years, animal screams and suicides, minds, new loves, mad generation, down on the rocks of time. Real, holy laughter in the river, they saw it all, the wild eyes, the holy yells, they bade farewell. They jumped off the roof to solitude, waving, carrying flowers, down to the river, into the street. Part 3 Carl Solomon, I'm with you in Rockland, where you're madder than I am. I'm with you in Rockland, where you must feel very strange. I'm with you in Rockland, where you imitate the shade of my mother. I'm with you in Rockland, where you've murdered your twelve secretaries. I'm with you in Rockland, where you laugh at this invisible humour. I'm with you in Rockland, where we are great writers on the same dreadful typewriter. 
I'm with you in Rockland, where your condition has become serious and is reported on the radio. I'm with you in Rockland, where the faculties of the skull no longer admit the worms of the senses. I'm with you in Rockland, where you drink the tea of the breasts of the spinsters of Utica. I'm with you in Rockland, where you pun on the bodies of your nurses, the harpies of the Bronx. I'm with you in Rockland, where you scream in a straitjacket that you're losing the game of the actual ping-pong of the abyss. I'm with you in Rockland, where you bang on the catatonic piano, the soul is innocent and immortal, it should never die ungodly in an armed madhouse. I'm with you in Rockland, where fifty more shocks will never return your soul to its body again from its pilgrimage to a cross in the void. I'm with you in Rockland, where you accuse your doctors of insanity and plot the Hebrew socialist revolution against the fascist national Golgotha. I'm with you in Rockland, where you will split the heavens of Long Island and resurrect your living human Jesus from the superhuman tomb. I'm with you in Rockland, where there are 25,000 mad comrades all together singing the final stanzas of the Internationale. I'm with you in Rockland, where we hug and kiss the United States under our bedsheets, the United States that coughs all night and won't let us sleep. I'm with you in Rockland, where we wake up electrified out of the coma by our own souls' airplanes roaring over the roof. They've come to drop angelic bombs. The hospital illuminates itself. Imaginary walls collapse Oh, skinny legions run outside. Oh, starry spangled shock of mercy. The eternal war is here. Oh, victory, forget your underwear. We're free. I'm with you in Rockland. In my dreams, you walk dripping from a sea journey on the highway across America in tears to the door of my cottage in the western night. We made it. <laughs> well now, well now, Allen Ginsberg, what do you say to that? You imagine hearing that in 1955 for the first time as the first drops of a consciousness of social rebellion are beginning to work their way into your soul, into your brain into your very being and you sense a need a need for change and you're craving a voice craving hearing something that speaks to you hearing something different something that is a counter song to compliance a counter song to blind acceptance a counter song to conspiracies of silence and blind spots and denial and repression. And you hear that 
it must have been absolutely mind-blowing and there's a power again like there's a power <coughs> sorry excuse me there's a power in the language and there's a relentlessness the the momentum of the poem i mean i read that pretty much blind <laughs> i stumbled over one or two words here and there but uh yeah i mean i just kind of read what was on the page um and sometimes that's enough if the, if the language is there and just i didn't try to uh think it through that's um that's a lot of text <laughs> anyway listen that's it that's it that's all i've got for you this week i was um i was nearly going to be extremely indulgent and and throw in one of my own confessional poems but uh I don't want to sully the greatness of of what I've read here on this episode. Um, another time, another time, perhaps it's uh, it would be too much of an insult because those poems, everything, everything I've just read, they all have, they're all poems of extraordinary power, and all poems of distinctive voices um, that are, yeah, hugely resonant um beautiful beautiful profound poetic cries from the heart uh, aren't we lucky aren't we lucky to have to have eyes to see and a brain and ears to receive that language a brain to concoct uh the imagery that the the language conveys so vividly um yeah so look i i hope you enjoyed it it was um yeah it was as as anticipated it was a bit of a challenge but i didn't really have the brain capacity this week having been really sick really for the last couple of weeks i just didn't have the brain capacity to to freestyle the way i normally do and there was an opportunity an opportunity to go on a bit of a, a poetic journey so um a nice a nice alternative to um the movie focus of last week's episode and maybe a reminder that poetry poetry is another vehicle of wellness reading poetry listening to poetry it um it invites us into the present and stimulates other parts of ourselves that aren't necessarily triggered or stimulated um, by other media like movies or books or music or whatever um, but Ginsberg really was he was he was the man I think I, I heard at some point in the last year or so I listened to an interview with Patti Smith probably probably on Mark Maron um, who I referred to last week on his podcast WTF and she told a very funny story about I mean, there was only really one way to interpret it, but fundamentally, Ginsburg um, treated her to lunch because he thought she was a very attractive young man and he was sounding her out for a potential seduction, <laughs> which is kind of brilliant. Um, so she's very self-deprecating in how she relays that story. You can find that on, uh, on Mark Maron's uh, show and you just do a youtube search and you bring up lots of interesting ginsburg collaborations um 
There's one there with um, there's one there with Bob Dylan. Uh, of course, another great counterculture figure and a New York '60s figure, amongst other things. Um, that's that's probably from back in the day. It looks older, but then there was one from close to the end of Ginsburg's life. I stumbled across, which is Allen Ginsberg and Paul McCartney playing a ballad of American skeletons. Um, and Paul McCartney's there playing his guitar and sort of just improvising along um, musical musical support while Ginsberg, probably only a couple of years before he died, I think he died in 97, and this was 95, I think in Albert Hall in London, um, and Ginsberg is reading um, yeah, A Ballad of American Skeletons. And I, I couldn't remember. It, was, it reminded me, there's a song I know, which is a very similar feel i don't know who recorded it unless it was the same bloody thing and someone else did a version of it anyway whatever you can seek that out that's worth um worth having a look at um yeah there you go so last week i forgot to include in the description my friend's website for his travel mandalas and i'll rectify that this week that's uh my friend sean and his wonderful artwork on travelmandalas.com so i'll put that link in the description this week um and yeah again ginsburg you can find him reciting hell himself uh with that very particular it's quite a 60s cadence that cadence of protest is what i think of although it would have been mid 50s so there i just got that one wrong as well okay you can find me as always on social media um the clear out podcast is on facebook youtube um instagram the clear out too on twitter and you can email me anytime you want uh, at the clear out live at gmail.com you can use the supporter link if you want to throw a one-off contribution to the podcast uh, which will be there wherever you're listening to the podcast or else you can become a regular patron of the podcast this independent product and fire a couple of quid my way every couple of weeks or so like give me a little cup of tea um so there's a patreon link there as well in the description patreon.com forward slash the clear out right i will leave you right there thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed the deluge of poetry from some great american poets i will see you next week and hopefully my voice and nose and head and sinuses will be back to normal okay take it easy mind yourselves all the best bye